So as we've been preaching, as I've been preaching through Ruth, we've been going through Ruth, I, I wanted to keep the story moving. So I made a commitment to to preach basically a chapter at a time, which is a stretch for me. It's probably a stretch for you. It's been some of the sermons have been longer. But at the same token, when we hit chapter four, I just want to pump the brakes a little bit because there is such rich theology in chapter four. I'm not going to drag it out, but we're going to take two Sundays to, to look at that. So just let you know that up front um, because it is so rich. So this morning we've seen from Ruth 4 uh, how the Lord provides for Ruth and I mean, to, to bring them to a state of fullness and at rest. Right? They're full and at rest. Now when a Christian man or woman unite in marriage, they make solemn commitments to one another. Most of you in here are married or have been married. You, you know what I'm talking about. You make a promise to fidelity to be there for one another. And oftentimes you hear the words for better, for worse, for richer, for poor. And if you don't use those exact words, that's okay. You still meant that. You didn't make a part-time or a temporary commitment to one another. You made a permanent, what you thought was a permanent commitment. You were intending it to be a permanent commitment. Um, For far too many professing Christians they make that commitment in the in the we'll call the aura of happiness, of blissfulness, of just wonderful spending time together. You can't fathom that you would ever have difficulties, and so you kind of make that commitment a little bit superficial. And for a lot of Christians or professing Christians, it's far too superficial, and it just can't survive the difficulties ahead. And difficulty comes. Life, their lives are a bit shattered and difficult. They abandon the vows of their marriage. Ryan and Megan Marlowe are just like every other couple. They made a commitment. Ryan is a pastor. Uh, she is a pastor's wife. Made a commitment to one another. And God blessed them with three children. And about 17 years in their marriage, on the anniversary day, in fact, when they were celebrating their anniversary dinner together, they both ate something contaminated with listeria. Made them both sick. But for Ryan, it had very serious consequences. It went to his brainstem. And he became very quickly uh, disabled. Within two weeks, uh, his wife was told that he was technically brain dead. Two weeks. Though he was kept alive on life support because he had volunteered to donate his organs at his death, and the doctors wanted to make sure that they could get those organs to a donor. Uh, during that time, Megan, with some family members, went to say goodbye to her husband. One of them played a video of their three kids. And Ryan's feet moved during the video. Now those who are technically brain dead, I'm not a medical doctor, but I've read that they can sometimes have twitches. So Megan wasn't sure, was it just a a twitch? Was it a false hope? Um, 
The next day, when the team came to take Ryan to harvest his organs, um, she wouldn't let them. She insisted that they do one more brain scan. And when that was done, they found that there was more to Ryan than they had initially assessed. And God used Megan's loyalty and her advocacy for her husband to keep him alive. And they have not had an easy path. Um, Ryan's had a lot of setbacks. Right? And all of that occurred in 2022. And Megan is today still providing updates on Facebook. You can go find uh, uh, Ryan and Megan Marlowe's uh, Facebook account. She keeps updated. But, but the point of all this is to say that Megan didn't turn away. She knew that if, if Ryan survived, he would not be the same man that she knew. She knew that, that he, he would need care, that she would be caring for him. Her life was totally different. She would now be the one that had to, to keep the family together, to care for her husband and her children. Now she's had lots of help from family in the church. But she didn't walk away from her vows. For better or for worse. And in March, uh, all that happened in, in August of 2022. In March 2023, the um, she and friends had a welcome home party for parades of sorts for Ryan. And again, he's he's battling, he's wheelchair, he needs help breathing, but he can interact with his kids. He can interact with his wife. And he's still making improvements. So again, it's a real life example of the kind of costly commitment that we're to make in marriage, but also the costly commitment that we see Boaz make to Ruth and Naomi in the in the book of Ruth. And any kind of faithfulness on, on Megan's part is just emulating the faithfulness of her Lord and her God. Let's read Ruth 4 together. And even though we won't make it all the way through the chapter, I'm going to read the chapter um, so we keep the story intact. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the kinsman redeemer of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, my fellow, sit down here. Then he turned aside and sat down. Then he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. Then, they said to the kins then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the fields of Moab, has to sell the portion of the field which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to uncover this matter in your hearing, saying, Acquire it before those who are sitting here, before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if no one redeems it, tell me that I may know, for there is no one to redeem it, no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the one who had died, in order to raise up the name of the one who had died on behalf of his inheritance. So the kinsman redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem 
my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was a custom in former times in Israel concerning the right of redemption and exchange of land to establish any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, Acquire this for yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I have acquired all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Mahlon from the hand of Naomi. And also I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Mahlon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the one who had died on behalf of his inheritance so that the name of the one who had, who had died will not be cut off from his brothers or from the gate of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. And all the people who were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May Yahweh grant the woman who is coming into your house be like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And so you shall achieve excellence in Ephrathah and shall proclaim your name in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the seed which Yahweh will grant you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and Yahweh granted her conception, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is Yahweh, who has not left you without a kinsman redeemer today, and may his name be proclaimed in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of your soul and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and put him on her bosom and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez became the father of Hezron, and Hezron became the father of Ram, and Ram became the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab became the father of Nashon, and Nashon became the father of Salmon. And Salmon became the father of Boaz. And Boaz became the father of Obed. And Obed became the father of Jesse. And Jesse became the father of David. What an amazing story. And in Ruth 4, what, what we're going to see is the Lord God continuing to work in the lives of his people in obvious ways and not so obvious ways. In visible ways and in hidden ways. So the lesson, one of the lessons we must take away from this is we must not lose sight of the work of God in our lives when we cannot see it. Do not lose, lose sight of the work of God in your life when you cannot see it. Sounds like an oxymoron. How can, how can we see that which we cannot see? By eyes of faith and trusting his word, trusting word, his word, his words like Ruth chapter four. Now, as we go through Ruth chapter four, I'm going to draw out uh, wonderful works of God, how he works in the lives of his people. And this morning, we're going to just look at one of those. Okay? And that is this, that, that God provided a redeemer who made the costly commitment to redeem. God provided a redeemer who made a costly commitment to redeem. Now, 
Remember where we're at in, in this story. Right? When I say story, it's, it's real history right? written for us in a short story. It's not a made-up story or a make-believe story. This is a real historical event. So remember where we're at. Right? So you have this family, Naomi's family, that goes to Moab because of this famine. Uh, Elimelech needs to feed his family, and there's no food in Bethlehem. Remember, Bethlehem means house of bread. So, a little bit of irony. There's no bread in the house of bread. So, they go to Moab. Elimelech dies. The, their two sons married Moabite women, right? And then those sons die. Naomi hears that there's now that God has visited his people, Yahweh has visited his people. And so in Bethlehem, and so they begin the journey back to Bethlehem. And during that journey, uh, Naomi does everything she can to convince her daughter-in-laws not to go with her. They're Moabitesses. They typically would not be well received in Israel. There was no reason for them to go with her. She was discouraged. She viewed the hand of God as being against her. And so she tried to convince her daughter-in-laws not to go. Orpah finally does what is natural. Orpah is not condemned for what she does. Like Elimelech's not condemned for what he did. She's just doing what makes sense, which is go back to her people. Ruth does what is abnormal. Ruth makes a covenant of fidelity. Naomi realizes she can't talk Ruth out of this. And so Ruth... Um, commits herself and the two of them go back to Bethlehem and at, at the end of chapter 1 we find Naomi as a bitter woman. And she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the hand of the Almighty it has, has been against me. I'm, I'm just bitter. Right? And Ruth plays kind of a minor role towards the end of that chapter. In chapter 2, the two widows need to eat. So you have um, Ruth taking the initiative to go out into the fields which surrounded Bethlehem. Remember, the Lord had visited His people to give them food, and that food was in the fields. And and Bethlehem was surrounded by fields, which is why it was called Bethlehem of Judea. So there were other Bethlehems, but this is the Bethlehem of Judea. And she goes out, and the Lord providentially guides her to the field of a relative of Naomi's relative, that is Boaz. She, she could have gone out to any field. Uh, there are fields all around the city, but the Lord providentially directed her to Boaz's field. And, and we know from looking at chapter 2 how Boaz reacted to her going to the field to glean what the, the Old Testament law allowed her to glean, right? to, to pick the gleanings, the leftovers, the things that the harvesters were to leave. Uh, they were not to harvest to the edges of the fields, the corners of the fields. But Boaz reacted so wonderfully. He protected her. He told his, he told the, 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 men, the young men not to touch her, not to harass her. And in fact, later he would feed her lunch, serve her, send her home with, with a, a bunch of, of grain, and even tell his harvesters um, to, uh, to, to pull out from the bundles right? grain for her to to, to pick up. So it makes her job a lot easier. But then weeks go by. There's no further contact with between Boaz and Naomi. I mean, Boaz and Ruth. And so Naomi concocts a plan in chapter 3. 
to get Ruth and Boaz uh, together in marriage. That's the goal. So there's this risky plan that could have gone could have gone very uh, badly. Uh, could have been very embarrassing for Boaz. Could have been a, a humiliating for Ruth. But the Lord intervenes. The Lord guides uh, Ruth, protects her, and causes Boaz to react in a way that's very positive towards Ruth. And he says, all that you said to me, I will do. But there's one little problem. I am a redeemer. I'm a kinsman redeemer. But but there's one who's closer than I am. That means Boaz did not have the right of redemption. This other person does. That's, that's where we find ourselves. Where, where Ruth and Boaz are, you could say, in love. Although the text doesn't use that language. It's not as if they fell in love. They are demonstrating love to one another. And, and yet there's a little bit of tension at the end of chapter 3. We don't know how things are going to end up. Well, we do because we read to the end of the story. But, but follow the storyline. Keep, keep the tension of the story here. That's what's intended here. So at the end of the night, or early morning, Ruth goes home with a, a bundle of grain so that she would not go to her mother-in-law empty. And, and Naomi just tells her to sit. That Boaz will not rest until the matter is settled today. That's the end of verse, end of chapter three. So when we get to chapter four, we see immediately Boaz taking action. And Naomi was right. He's not going to go do something else. This is number one priority for him. So he, verse one says that Boaz went up to the gate and he sat down there. Now to us, that sounds very strange. Why would you go up to the gate? Well, keep in mind that, um, that Cities like Bethlehem, not all cities had walls around them, but Bethlehem was a fortified city, meaning it had a wall around it to protect its citizens. And if you have a wall around your city, you need gate a gate to get in and out. Right? So that's the purpose of the gate. But also, the gate served another function. So in, in cities, and we think Bethlehem may have been one of those, they have larger gates that actually have, behind the gate itself, they would have rooms for those who are guarding the gate, even at night or day, there would be rooms large enough for 10 to 12 people to meet in them. And those rooms became places where the townspeople conducted business. And it's also where they had their court. When they had a legal matter that they had to settle as a, as a town, that's where it was settled. In smaller, in smaller uh, cities, they, where they wouldn't have necessarily rooms next to or attached to the gate, they would use the, the plaza just inside the gate as a, as a similar manner, as a place for business. So that's where Boaz heads. And um, these, uh, this, this is reflected, this custom is reflected even in, in Proverbs 31 and talking about the excellent woman. It says in verse 23, her husband is known in the gates. Right? That's reflecting this custom. That the townsmen would, would come together at the gates to not just to talk, but to conduct business. And so that's what Boaz is doing. And the fact that he goes and sits down symbolizes he isn't just hanging around. He has come to do business um, with and, and to resolve the matter which he told Ruth he would, he would do. Uh, Boaz wants to settle the matter, not just today, but this morning. 
He didn't wait till later on. Now, if you look at verse four, it's kind of interesting. And and it, it sounds clunky in English where you read these words and he sat down there and behold, I mean, we don't walk around talking like that. And behold, you know, it's, but again, the author is trying to do something. What is he trying to do? Communicate surprise. Well, looky here. It just so happens that the guy that they were talking about shows up at the gate. I mean, he could have done something else that day. He could have been sick that day. He could have been traveling to Jerusalem that day. But he just so happened that morning to show up at the gate. And this kinsman redeemer, and I remember the kinsman redeemer, the, it's really the word, um, it, the, it's the idea of a, of a close relative who, who redeems. Um, now, Boaz invites the potential redeemer, we'll just call him that, he's the potential redeemer, he invites him over. And, and he, 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 he saw him passing by and he said, turn aside, my fellow, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He was agreeable. Now it's interesting, we don't know his name. The LSB says, my fellow. What does your Bible say? NASB? ESV? New King James Version? Says what? Friend. But guess what? Hebrew has a perfectly good word for friend. And it's not that word. What is the author doing? He didn't give us his name. In Hebrew, to just transliterate the name, it would go something like this. Poloni Almoni. Poloni Almoni. Sounds Italian, doesn't it? Um, Italy wasn't that far, so maybe. I don't know. But it's not a name. And it's not translatable either. The, the best way to put it in the vernacular would be to call the guy Joe Schmo. One, one translation, the new English translation, calls him John Doe. Which is a good vernacular, I think, translation. Uh, there's one Jewish uh, publication society Bible that calls him so-and-so, translates it so-and-so. And so we'll just call him Mr. So-and-so. Why does the author of this book, all right, this is a human author, but there's also the Holy Spirit author. Why does the author leave him nameless? I'll just let that sit a minute. We'll get back to that. But there's, there's intention with this. It's not by accident. The name is veiled to us. But the Holy Spirit intentionally did not want us to know this name. So Mr. So-and-so accepts Boaz's invitation. And he sits down at the gate. And having secured the man he wanted to talk to. What does, he, what does Boaz do now? Look what he does. Um, he took ten men of the elders in the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Notice the, the phrase. He took. I mean, Boaz is out there. He's he's going to, he's going out of the gate. He's seeing people walk by. He's like, "Come here." He's it's like it's like not forcibly, but you're kind of manipulating. You're grabbing a guy from the can. Come here, I need you. Yeah, I need you too. Come over here. He gets ten. Why ten? The law only requires what two to three witnesses to witness something. But ten was typically required to to form like a quorum for legal business, and ten men are required to form a synagogue. So that's just there's just a, um, a tradition with, with ten. 
Boaz wants us to be on the up and up. He wants 10 witnesses to witness whatever is going to happen. So, so that's what he's, what he's doing there. Right? He is uh, kind of coercing these people, but, but they're cooperative. They want to know what's going on. And the fact that they cooperated with Boaz and this other redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, so easily cooperated with Boaz shows you how much influence Boaz had within the city. He was an influential person. So uh, if an influential person wants to have a conversation with you, you're like, okay, sure, let me hear. What's, what's on your mind? And, and so they're all agreeable. So then Boaz has the quorum and he gives his speech, his first speech to Mr. So-and-so. And we see that beginning in verse 3. This is His speech is contained in verses 3 and 4. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the fields of Moab, has to sell the portion of the field which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So let's just pause there a minute. This is new information to us. We've heard something about Ruth being redeemed, but we haven't heard anything about land being redeemed. So this is, this is kind of new information to us as the, as the readers. And also, Boaz calls um, Elimelech our brother. Notice that in, in verse 3, which belonged that field, the portion of the field which belonged to our brother Elimelech. Remember, Jerusalem was surrounded by fields. They didn't have fencing like we would fence off our property and make it very clear what's ours. They, in Israel, they used uh, boundary stones. So those boundary stones marked someone's field. And uh, but the field, if you were to look at it from a distance, it would be the field. There is the field. And that portion of the field belonged to Boaz and another portion of the field belonged to Elimelech. And so that portion of the field that belonged to Elimelech is what's in question here. Uh, Boaz says Naomi needs to sell that land. Now, now, why would she need to sell that land? Well, we're not really told those details, but, but there, here's, here are the possibilities that Elimelech when he led his family out of Bethlehem, sold his land to someone who would work it and left it. And so Naomi is coming back 10 years later, and now she needs that land back in order to sustain herself, but she doesn't own the land. Now, one of the things that we need to understand here is that in Israel, God owns the land. He owns all the land. And the people would have the right to work the land. So they were like leases, if you will. God is the one who owned the land permanently. And so someone, when they were destitute in a, in a bad situation, they could sell their land to someone else in order to get in a financial hardship. But the person buying it, because they're an Israelite, would know that they're not really buying a permanent title to the land. You're only buying the land, the use of the land, from that day until the next year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee happened every 50 years. So you got use of that land for however long it is. And you paid, the amount you paid varied on how many years till Jubilee that you had. We're not given the details of Elimelech's um, negotiations, what he did. And it's possible that because there was a famine in the land, that nobody wanted to buy the land. Like, why would they want to buy land if they can't work it? And so it's possible that Elimelech just left town and the land sat fallow and, and unused. Uh, we don't know. We don't know the situation. But what we do know is that Naomi needed to sell that land to help support herself. She couldn't redeem that land herself. 
Uh, she didn't have the finances to do that. She she was needing someone to redeem the land, to either buy it back from whoever Elimelech sold it to, or to to buy it from Naomi so she would have cash to to function as a as a widow. So either one of those scenarios still fits the story. The, a redeemer is needed to help Naomi to to buy this land. Um, so. The um, the role of the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer, is there's five different specific instances that the the redeemer was supposed to by by law by God's law was was supposed to help out. One was accepting restitution on behalf of a relative. Secondly, avenging the death of a relative. Thirdly, buying back a relative out of slavery. So if they get their if their financial situation got really bad, they would sell themselves as a slave. All right. Um, Again, not permanently within the land of Israel. They would be freed at Jubilee. But but someone that came along, a relative could come along and buy them out of that slavery. Uh, they could, a person could also sell their house in order to uh, pay off their financial debt. And a redeemer could come along and buy that house back for that person. And then the fifth situation is what we see here in Ruth, where a redeemer is needed to buy land and, and to... Um, to, to buy back that land and provide it uh, financial sustenance for Naomi. So that's the scenario. This is the court. It's basically a courtroom session that we're dealing with here. And Boaz clearly declares what, what they're there for. They're there to, to determine um, who is the redeemer for Naomi. Now, notice, if you would, in verses three and four and even following, how many times the word redeemer is used. Redeemer, 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 Redeemer. Helps you understand the emphasis, very clear, on the emphasis of Ruth chapter 4, and I would argue even the whole book of Ruth. This is a book about redemption. Um, So the courtroom is set to witness the decision, and Boaz declares the purpose. he's He's just saying that Ruth, I mean, sorry, Naomi needs to be, the land. her land needs to be redeemed. So he says there in verse four, he says, so I thought to uncover this matter in your hearing, saying, acquire it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if no one redeems it, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it. And I am after you. So he's he's basically telling the gentleman, acknowledging you have the right to redeem this land. But if you don't want it, I'm next in line, and I will redeem it. What happens? A little curveball gets sent. What does he say? Very quickly, Mr. So-and-so says, I'll redeem it. Hey, quick. That's, that's what the author is trying to help you to see. Like This guy is jumping on the boat. Oh, redeem land? You got it. I'm all in. Hey? Now, this is a little strange for us. We don't know anything about him. He's new to the story. We know there's a Ruth involved. He doesn't know that yet. And we're like, oh, no, 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 no. This is not how the story is supposed to go. There's romance involved here. Now, I know in many countries, marriages are arranged and men and women learn how to, they learn how to love one another. So our idea of romance before marriage is not always the way it goes. And you can still have wonderful romance uh, even if you don't meet your husband until the wedding day. 
But that's not how the story's going. We kind of built this up between Boaz and Ruth. The other two that should get together, not Mr. So-and-so. And I imagine, I just wonder if like Ruth was nearby or she was she like, was she like at home saying, oh, I just can't, I can't go there. I can't listen. Or if she was nearby, her heart would have sunk when she heard Mr. So-and-so say, I will redeem you. Wow. Now, the whole scenario here, look at, look at what he says. Um, let me just back up and say, Mr. So-and-so was quick to redeem it. Why? One, it would bolster his reputation. Hey, he's a redeemer. He's taking care of Naomi, a widow. Right? That's what God wants people to do. And it's true. Even in the New Testament, we see that. The true faith, the faith of, is one that takes care of, of orphans and widows. But also, Mr. So-and-so would gain something. Land. And as I told you before, uh, God owned all the land. So it was very difficult to enlarge your field and get more land. It wasn't easy. So an opportunity to gain land and therefore increase your harvest and therefore increase your profitability as your business right, was a win-win situation. And that's why he just jumps in and says... Absolutely. Amen. Um, but then Boaz gives him a second speech, which changes things drastically. Again, new information. A girl. So far, just lands been mentioned. Um, Boaz said in verse 5, he says, Then Boaz said, On the day that you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Naomi. Um, Sorry, the widow of the one who had died in order to raise up the name of the one who had died on behalf of his inheritance. Now, what is what is Boaz doing here? Now, well, Boaz is pursuing the right thing. But I want you to understand the law of God that's operating and directing Boaz in the background. One is the the idea or the law of a redeemer. I, I, um, I mentioned last week, I'll mention today, that, that Boaz was not under any obligation to redeem Ruth at all. This is something he was pursuing willingly. He knew it was the right thing to do and that's why he wanted to do it. He knew, he knew that Naomi and Ruth needed protection. They needed provision. So he was pursuing that. But he didn't have to do it. Because I mentioned the five cases where a redeemer was required by law to take care of their relative, their near relative. And really only the land is the only one that comes very closest to that. Um, nothing about um, Ruth at, at all in that. But I want you to understand another piece of legislation. And that was what's called the leveret marriage. Now, leveret is the Latin term flows from the, uh, the term, the Latin term, brother-in-law. So in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 10, perhaps it would be helpful if we go look at that real quick. Deuteronomy 25 lays out instructions for what we call leveret marriage or brother-in-law marriage. Deuteronomy 25, beginning verse 5. If brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, then the wife of the one who had died shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife. 
and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it will be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, so that the name so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he stands and says, I do, do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders, shall pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face, and she shall answer and say, Thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And in Israel his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. Again, a renaming, very significant, strange to us. But keep in mind that the inheritance of the land was always with the family. If there was not um, uh, a man uh, to inherit the land, the land would pass to another family. And that was always seen as a negative thing by God and by Israel. So the situation is you have brothers who live together. right? The one marries and uh, then at some point after he is married, um, he he dies without having children. Then his brother, who we can presume would be marriageable, meaning he's not mar- already married, would then marry the widow. And their first child would carry his brother's name in order that his brother's name not um, not perish in the land. So that's this that's this that is the legal requirement of the law. Now, if we go back to the book of Ruth. There's some situations here that show us that that the lever at marriage doesn't really apply. Now, Boaz is following it, but he's not required to follow it. That's what I want to show you. Uh, why is he not required? Well, Boaz is not a, was not a brother to Elimelech. Right? He calls him brother, but only in the sense of like a fellow Bethlehem Ephrathite. Right? Not in the biological sense of brother. So he wasn't a brother. He didn't live with him. Um, and we see this, uh, that the Leverett marriage also didn't apply because when Ruth goes to Boaz in the middle of the night and says, you know, puts her, asks him to spread his cover, his wing over her, that's proposal for marriage, he praises her and says, you could have gone after anyone. You could have gone after, you know, the young, whether poor or rich. Well, in Leverett marriage, that was not the case. The woman was not to marry outside the family. So that's also proof that the leveret marriage really wasn't uh, the requirement here. So, so Boaz is, is kind of entering this information that causes, look at, it causes the Mr. So-and-so to immediately back out. He said in verse 6, just as fast as he was in, he was out. Right? So the kinsman redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Why did he so quickly back out? Well, um, there's some things that we need to back up and understand from verse 5. When he says to the kinsman redeemer, on the day that you acquire the land, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabite. There's a textual issue going on in the Hebrew that isn't quite obvious in the English. 
it could be that he actually said that. And, and in, in this particular case, then the kinsman redeemer would have acknowledged it. He didn't, he didn't contest it. He's like, yeah, that's the right thing to do. He just said, no, I'm out. I'm, I, I don't want any part of it. He didn't say, no, that's not part of the deal. He just said, I'm out. Um, but some of the older Hebrew manuscripts that we have, actually, instead of saying, you must acquire Ruth, say, I must acquire Ruth. So Boaz is, it could be saying here, he's telling the kinsman redeemer, on the day you acquire the land, I must acquire Ruth. So that's, that's a distinct possibility as to actually what happened. Now, whether the kinsman redeemer is going to redeem Ruth, or whether Boaz redeems Ruth, it's still a problem for the kinsman redeemer. Why is it a problem? He mentions his inheritance. Why is this inheritance even brought into this? Because when he initially talked about redeeming the land, he knew Naomi was in the picture. Naomi is beyond marital age by her own admission. She's beyond the birthing years. There's no child. There's no inheritance. The family line is kerplunk. It's dead. So that kinsman redeemer can step in and redeem Naomi, look good, gain land. But guess what happens in the year of Jubilee? It remains his. It doesn't go back to the family because there's no family for it to go back to. So whether Boaz is saying, I'm going to marry Ruth, you can have the land. But I want you to know that I'm raising up children. I'm going to do my best to raise up children for this, this dead brother. And his name will live on. And that's the problem. Because even if the new kinsman, the potential kinsman, he takes Ruth and marries her, and there's children of their union, there's still the first child of that union is named after the brother. So that child would then inherit the land. The kinsman redeemer would fork out all the money to redeem the land and help Naomi, but he wouldn't receive the enduring benefit from that. And he was not willing to do that. And he backs out immediately. But Boaz. Was the type of redeemer. Who knew the costly commitment he was making. He was making a commitment. Not just to marry Ruth. But to redeem Naomi. To redeem the land. And to raise up the name of a brother. And, and that, that son. Would then take hold of the, of the land. So Boaz gets temporary benefit, but not an enduring benefit. There's a cost to Boaz redeeming the land. And, and that's what we're to see with this, is Boaz so willingly did it. Um, so he, he wants to make it official. We see this strange, uh, actually, the, it's kind of interesting that the narrative is broken up in, in verse 7. The, the story writer, whoever wrote this, is giving us a little clue on, on a custom. He's about ready to tell his readers. Which shows us that whoever wrote this wrote this a long time after Ruth because this custom was lost. If they had just went in and explained the custom of the sandal, they would not have understood it. So in verse 7, this was a custom in former times in Israel concerning the right of redemption and exchange of land to establish any matter. The man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was a matter of attestation of Israel. This is, again, strange custom to us. But we're used to like, Contracts, paperwork, we sign them and that's our proof. We bought the land, you got the deed. Well, they didn't have that then. 
know what's going on. This exchange of the sandal was show was shown to be that's that's this man's willing um, offering up his right. Right. So not, it wasn't just word, even though he had witnesses. It, it wasn't just word. He was to take his sandal and to give it to Boaz. Why the sandal? What's so important with the sandal? Well, there's significance because as the Israelites went into the land where their feet would trod, the soles of their sandals would trod, that would be their land. And so it's symbolic of the ownership of the land. So that's why they would exchange the sandals. So that's what they end up doing. Now keep in mind, in the Leveret marriage, there is a sandal involved, but notice how differently it's used. In this case, the man willingly offered up his sandal. In a leveret marriage, if if the brother wasn't willing to marry his uh, his his brother's wife and raise up a child for him, then she was to to pull his sandal off that is unwillingly and hit him in the face, slap him in the face, spit in his face. Right? So again, when this redeemer bails out, this so-called potential redeemer, Mister So and So bails out, you. You don't see any of the townspeople like rebuking him. There's not, no shame for him to back out. So again, the leveret marriage doesn't apply here. What Boaz is doing is all voluntarily. All voluntary. It's costly, but voluntary. And there's no doubt that he is, he is, he loves Ruth. There's no doubt about that, but he understands the sacrifice that he is called, um, to make, to, to make, to make that redemption happen. And, and so he makes it official. Um, so the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, acquire this for yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I've acquired all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon from the hand of Naomi. And also, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Mahlon. It's the only place in the whole story where we know who Ruth was married to, the widow of Mahlon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the one who had died on behalf of his inheritance, so that the name of the one who has died will not be cut off from his brothers or from the gate of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. The fact that that whole idea of not, that this, this brother's name would not be cut off, this man's name would not be cut off, is repeated several times in here. It's an emphasis, right? Showing Boaz's concern for their family line. And look at how the people responded, all the people at the gate. Um, we are witnesses. And they go into some prayers which we'll look at next time. But I just want us to pause here and think about Boaz. He was willing to pay the price of redemption. He gladly paid that price. Now some refer to Boaz as a type of Christ. I think MacArthur uh, uh, Bible study notes uh, do that. That Boaz is a type of Christ to redeem his people from his sins. Um, this is done because of Boaz's exemplary behavior. No matter in a story, no matter what compromising situation Boaz is in, he always does the right thing. He takes care of Ruth. He provides for her, protects her, doesn't take advantage of her, um, provides for Naomi. He's concerned about Naomi as well. Um, people also make the connection of, of Boaz being a type of Christ because there's obvious parallels in the redemption. Boaz redeemed Ruth at high cost. Redeemed Naomi at high cost. Our Savior also redeemed us at high cost. But it's interesting. That no New Testament writer ever uses Boaz. To compare him to Christ. No New Testament writer ever calls Boaz a, a type of Christ. 
So I prefer to think of of Boaz not as a type necessarily, official type, but as a, a foreshadowing. There's no doubt that we can see the the foreshadowing of the person of Jesus Christ and what Boaz did. His costly commitment to redeem this this widow, the two widows. Think about what Jesus Christ did for us. The costly commitment. He didn't have to do that. The law doesn't require God to die for his people. It's a costly payment. But he willingly and joyfully did it. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And just just think about what we're told in Scripture. Let me just read a few. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 6. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our peace fell upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. And all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. But Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide for him a portion with the many. He will divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for transgressors. That's the role of a redeemer. He intercedes. Think about Jesus himself said, John 10. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. He is a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches and scatters them because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Think about what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, it uses the form. Don't misunderstand. He's not saying God, that Jesus was like in some other form like God. He's saying he was God. He was, he was in the very form of God. And yet Jesus did not consider that a thing to be grasped. That is a thing to be to be to, to cling to. Jesus let it go. Why did he let it go? Well, Paul tells us. But he emptied himself by taking a form of a slave. And he emptied himself. That doesn't mean he stopped being God. It means he submitted. He humbled himself. And he, he gave up the, his right to be exalted and glorified as, as God temporarily so he could take on our sins. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those on heaven and earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is Yahweh, to the glory of of God the Father. Paul puts it succinctly in 
Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He says, The Father who has rescued us from the authority of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have what? Redemption. The forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the Redeemer. Paul says it again, Ephesians 1, verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of His grace. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered, he entered the holy places once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been made defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ through whom the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Our God redeems. And he redeems from sin to rescue you from the greatest disease that you face, which is dying in your sins. Dying without a redeemer. But God is that redeemer. You have a savior. You have a redeemer. How are you going to react? How are you reacting right now? Some of you are praising the Lord. I can see it from your faces. But perhaps others of you are indifferent. Are you really going to be indifferent to such a redeemer who has paid such a high price to redeem you from your sins? I beg of you, submit to him. Flee to him as your redeemer, and he will glad you, gladly put you under his wing and take care of you. Because that's who God is. And we started this message starting about talking about marital covenant. There's another one, another example I want to give you to show you the, the type of marital faithfulness that, that God demonstrates in his own, in it, through his own actions uh, with us. Remember, we're looking at his, at, at God's work among us, even when we can't see it. Now, some of you probably, most of you probably have not heard of Robertson McQuilkin. He served as the third president of Columbia International University. Then it was Columbia Bible College. And he served there from 1968 to 1990. And he was a very gifted uh, teacher, influential leader. The school blossomed under his leadership. Um, he was speaking in many different places. But in 1990, um, he, after about 40 years of marriage, he resigned his presidency to take care of his wife. His wife had contracted early Alzheimer's, uh, early onset Alzheimer's disease. And, and when he was gone, they didn't live too far from the school, but when he was at school working, she would be very upset. She would be distraught. Um, and at times they would find her walking the mile or so from their home to the college to try to find him. And when she began forgetting, um, like put on shoes, uh, she would even walk barefooted. And there's one time he was taking her, trying to, I think he was taking her shoes off, and he noticed her feet were kind of bloodied uh, because she had walked to try to find him um, at the school. 
And so he knew that it was just time to devote himself to taking care of her. He said it was one of the simplest and clearest decisions he had ever made because it was just the right thing to do. Let me just read to you his own explanation. Muriel, that's the name of his wife. Muriel, now in the last couple of months, seems to be almost almost happy with me and almost never happy when not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped, becomes very fearful, sometimes almost terror. And when she can't get to me, there can be anger. She's in distress. But when I'm with her, she's happy and contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health till death do us part, and I'm a man of my word, but it's the only fair thing. She sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible. So if I cared for her for 40 years, I'd still be in debt. However, there's much more. It's not that I have to. It's that I get to. I love her very dearly. And you can tell it's not easy to talk about. She's a delight. And it's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. You know, it's not rare for a woman to devote herself to care for a husband that has cancer and is dying of cancer, no matter how long it takes. But do you know that it's actually much rarer for a man to devote himself to his wife who's dying? Sad fact. But he sets an example. And his, he doesn't want any of the attention himself. He's with heaven. He's in heaven now. So um, his, he's with his reward. But when he was alive, he didn't want any of the attention. He couldn't understand why people were making such a big deal out of what he did. It was just a natural thing to do. And I think that's what Boaz said. This is just the right thing to do. Why are you making such a big deal out of it? And in a sense, our God has done the right thing. That he didn't have to do. But he did it to redeem us from our sins. Yahweh keeps all of his promises. And you can trust that he will redeem. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we just exalt you as our redeemer. The one who cares for us. The one who has rescued us. And the one who is even now rescuing all those who flee to you for safety, for shelter, for protection. Lord, even today, draw to yourself. Lord, men, women, teenagers, and children who hear of you and want to know you. They want their sins forgiven, and they want your protection. Oh, God, just do your work in their lives and help us as believers just to continually give you thanks as we learn more about your wonderful work of redemption, which you have accomplished in an eternal sense. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.